As they used to say on NBC, if it's Sunday, it's Meet the Press. Well, if it's January in Chicago, it's Spencer Levy. Spencer has promised an informational, exciting presentation and has also promised that if we're on our best behavior today, he's going to give us his unbiased opinion on the latest with Prince Harry and Meghan Merkel. <laughs> For those who do not know Spencer, he is the global client strategist and uh, senior economic advisor for CBRE. For most of us who are at the Green Machine, he is our spokesman who has been quoted in major business publications and also appearances on business television. Spencer is also the host of CBRE's podcast, The Weekly Take, which was, num which was the only positive, I think, that came out of the dreadful year of 2020. So please give me, please give a warm Chicago welcome to our Baltimore friend. He's the refined Raven, the Brainy Blast, which is the Baltimore uh, soccer team, the notorious Nighthawk, the women's football team in, in uh, uh, Baltimore, and the um, Oracle of the Orioles, the right honorable Spencer Levy. I think I, think I got a mic here, I'm good. So let me tell you what I think about Prince Harry. Now, I, that's not what we're going <laughs> to talk about here today. And I said this to a lot of folks, this is my favorite event of the year for every reason except for one. You guys always serve the best food at this event, and I can't eat any of it because I'm the speaker guy up here today. So um, why don't we begin? And I will just say this. I will take about... 15 minutes of questions at the end, but if anybody has the dying urge to get up and cheer during the prezo, feel free to do that. That's it. Thanks for coming. <laughs> so why do I theme today's presentation Jeopardy. Well, I was actually a contestant on the game show The Price is Right, but I didn't feel like The Price is Right was a good theme today because nobody knows what the prices are right now. But Jeopardy seemed like a good theme because everybody thinks that they're in jeopardy about what's happening in the broader economy. Well, I'm here to talk about what's happening. I will give you the point of view in the glass half full, the glass half empty, and hopefully walk away with some ideas you can use. So this is what we're going to talk about today. We are going to talk about the big picture, the macro, the micro, capital markets, big ideas. But before we begin, we've got to get to the most important question. If we don't answer it, I'm just, just not going to go on. Big picture. What is the name of the artist who performed the song that I walked on to? Oh, wait a minute, we've got an answer in the back. Yes, sir. Greg the Greg Kinn Band. Well done, sir. This table over here is saying men without hats. We had a flock of seagulls over there. We had uh, uh, the police. Greg Kinn Band. Now, can you name any other song by Greg Kinn? No. There we go. <laughs> One hit wonder. One hit wonder. Okay. But what will be, uh, sir, what's your name? All right, Tom. So, Tom, since you got the Greg Kin Band, could you tell us what will be our biggest economic challenge of the next decade? <laughs> what was that? All right. Yeah, we'll let it go. We'll let it go. That's okay. The biggest challenge will be labor. Just not enough of it. And there's not a lot of easy ways to solve this problem, but I have one easy way to talk about it with the voice of none other than Lisa Konichka, who's sitting right over there, did not even know she was going to be in today's presentation. And yes, this will be my first of what will be at least a half dozen shameless plugs for the Weekly Take podcast. I've had the opportunity to represent several uh, new companies that moved to Chicago over the last 18 to 24 months, and each one of those was driven first and foremost by labor. Secondarily, it was also driven by 
just the peer set that's available in, in Chicago. Chicago is a big city, but it's got a level of affordability to it. It's got a level of approachability to it. And I will say, you can't forget, Chicago is also in the middle of the country. So we are equally accessible to all parts of the United States. And that becomes a pretty big driver. We've got a huge airport. We've got all this accessibility. So when I look at a lot of my clients are in that professional services ranks where they have employees flying all over the country. And admittedly, that hasn't been happening as much over the last 18 to 24 months. But still, that value is really, really important. Thank you, Lisa, for giving the answer on labor and why Chicago. Well done. Well done. But labor is an issue, and it's going to be for a very, very long time because all of the solutions to the labor shortage, starting with a higher birth rate, aren't going to get us there because last time I checked, uh, five-year-olds aren't the most productive uh, members of our working uh, force. But I will also start with this. I will tell you when I am right. I will tell you when I am wrong. I got up on this very stage a few years ago and I said, not only do I think inflation is going to be lower for longer, I think it's going to be lower forever. That didn't work out. <laughs> and why didn't it work out? Because I based my assumption on four basic tenets. Too much cheap labor, too much cheap energy, too much cheap money, and then innovation itself, which is actually deflationary. And three out of four proved wrong. Why labor? Because we are deglobalizing. Why energy? The Ukraine war. And why no more cheap money? Do we have any bankers in the room here today? No bankers? Oh, uh, we do. What's your name, sir? Uh, Martin. How are you, Martin? Martin, when I hear an accent, are you uh, British? Yeah, I'm related to Prince Howard. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, Martin, while we're on the topic, well, what bank are you with, if you don't mind me asking? Northern Trust. Northern Trust. And so, um, are you lending today? Not as much as you were. So I would get, take a, a wild guess that Northern Trust, for its better customers, probably the cost of debt for the average deal, 200 basis points higher than it was at the beginning of last year, and probably at a lower loan to value. Is that a fair statement? Good, good. So, but because by the end of today's presentation, Martin, I'm going to get you down to 100 over where you were last year, and we'll have a, people beating a path to your door. But yeah, that's the implication. There's just no money out there. Very hard to get a loan. Equity is sitting on its hands, putting its pencils down. <clears throat> the Ukraine war. If I gave this presentation this time last year, well, this time last year the war hadn't started yet, but. Sometime around this time last year, I already said this thing would have been over by now. But it's not. And the thing is, it ain't never going to be over, certainly not in the short term, even if there is some kind of settlement, even if there is some kind of Russian victory or other kind of stalemate. And that's because it upended the geopolitical order. So that labor issue that you saw at the beginning is directly related to this. Because the reason why we had so much cheap labor was because we were importing goods from places like China and Malaysia and Vietnam where their cost of labor is 10% of ours, if that. Now that whole geopolitical order has been upended and the question is will we go back to a globalized economy or are we going to become more regionalized in the Americas and elsewhere? Now the EU world economy is pretty fragile right now and not to rank on the UK, but uh, you had an interesting uh, tenure of your uh, former prime minister, Liz Truss. As a matter of fact, uh, the Financial Times said that uh, she had the same shelf life as a head of lettuce. <laughs> and uh, in fact, I went to a Halloween party for the first time where I actually put on a costume uh, in about 40 years, a few um, uh, months ago, and one of my colleagues went as uh, a well-dressed woman, but she had a head of lettuce under her arm with Liz Truss's face on it. Now. What actually went down there? What, what went wrong? Well, this is what happened. The chancellor of the exchequer got on a stage just like this and said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to lower taxes and lower regulations. Now, when you hear that, most people say, well, that sounds pretty reasonable. But that statement almost tanked the entire pension fund system in the UK and got Liz Truss and her chancellor of the Exchequer fired faster than ever. So, but let me ask everybody a trivia question. 
Does anybody know which U.S. president raised taxes four times and then told his then head of the Fed to do whatever was necessary to reduce inflation? Anybody want to shout out an answer? It was Ronald Reagan, okay? A lot of people think it was Carter, but it was Reagan that raised taxes four times and uh, told Paul Volcker to do whatever was necessary. What's my point here? Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher are probably two of the main architects of free market economics. And there is a time and a place for that. This, when Liz Truss and her chancellor of the Exchequer came in, was not the time and the place for it, which is why the world economy almost tanked over it. But it just shows how fragile we are at this moment. We are right now, as we sit in this room, at what I call the moment of peak volatility and other shocks like that could have similar impact. But thank God we've got a Fed. I am one of the biggest fans of the Fed and I may be in the minority on this. Why am I a big fan of the Fed? Well, there's two reasons why I'm a big fan of the Fed. Number one, the Fed is politically remote. They are not under the president Congress or anybody else, and they make decisions based upon what they believe is in the best interest of the economy. And I, if anybody asks me what helps me sleep well at night, it is that. But the other reason I like the Fed is because the Fed, who I've spoken to, I spoke to the head of the Kansas City Fed the other day, they do not want to raise interest rates. Even though they say, oh, we're going to raise interest rates more. By the way, that's my voice from uh, Tony in the movie The Shining. You ever see that? <laughs> Am I the only guy who saw that movie? <laughs> what they want to do is scare you so that they don't have to raise interest rates because they only have two tools. They have raising interest rates and then the bully pulpit. And they're trying to talk the economy down rather than force it down, which is why you heard Jerome Powell's famous pain speech that he gave in Jackson Hole back in August. So I'm a big fan of the Fed. They're doing a great job, notwithstanding the pain that all of you folks feel. And the Fed is happy that you feel pain. And the reason is it will make you spend less. It will make you do less economic activity. And then the Fed's job is easier, as we saw this morning, to get that CPI curve down to where it needs to be closer to the Fed's target of 2%. So for those of you that are numerically inclined, this is what all this fancy stuff means. This fancy stuff means that we're going to have GDP this year of about zero. CPI is going to come down, as we saw today. And the 10-year Treasury, which is about 3.5% today, has largely peaked. Now, I'm going to get you comfortable with the number zero. Because a lot of people say, oh, the economy's growing at 0%. That's bad. Well, there's zero, and then there's zero. Because the way GDP is calculated is you have both real GDP, which is after adjusting for inflation, and then you have what's known as nominal GDP, which is before adjusting for inflation. If you look at the nominal GDP, the underlying growth in the economy, it's incredibly strong. It's growing at close to a 7% clip. That's why the Fed is putting their foot on the brakes right now to try to slow that down. The other good news about nominal inflation or nominal growth is that the Fed's balance sheet is calculated in nominal dollars. So the Fed is actually getting more dry powder every day simply because the economy is growing at such a good clip. But what does this mean to all of you, my friendly neighborhood real estate professionals? Well, this is what it means. It means that Martin now will give a loan at 150 over where he was at the beginning. Is that, we, we, I talked you down yet? Not yet. I'm leaning on you, man. I got another 40 minutes here, and I'm going to get you down. What it means for you is you can't get a loan. There's illiquidity out there. And I could talk to you about where pricing has gone for all asset classes, call it about 200 basis points up from where it was a year ago, not that different than Martin's 175 over loan that he's going to give you. But the point is, is that you can't get a loan at the same levels or the same LTV, which is slowing transaction volume to a crawl. It's also making it very difficult if you're a landlord to give TI dollars to our friendly neighborhood occupiers out there in Cornet. So a lot of people out here say, oh, the cards are on my side of the table right now. I can't help that voice, John. It just comes, <laughs> just comes out of me from nowhere. 
But the cards aren't completely on your side of the table because these landlords legitimately can't pay sometimes the TI allowances that you want. And so you have to really think about why do you want to be in that building and how much are you prepared to put in yourselves? And I will tell you, there are plenty of big landlords in New York City and elsewhere or occupiers that are putting a lot of those dollars in themselves. I just got back from Hudson Yards where I probably have a half dozen clients in there. Do you know what the TI costs that the tenants are paying in that building are? All right, this is, I'm glad you're all done with your lunch because you'll fall out of your chair. $650 a foot. Ba-dum-bum. So next time you see that, oh, I got to send $200 to the CFO. Tell them that story. Thinner. I'm a big supply and demand person. And thinner is what we talk about when we talk about the bidding pools. I don't mean drink the paint thinner. That's not good. We just don't have enough bidders out there. We have a lot of what my good friend Chris Ludeman, who's our global head of capital markets, calls tire kickers out there. We have a lot of people bidding, but they really don't want the asset. They don't have the money to pay for it because the banks aren't lending. So that is causing this upward pressure on cap rates. And then we have the office sector. <laughs> Does that chart require any explanation? <laughs> well, the office sector got hit with, to use a fancy economics term, a double whammy. Whammy number one is what you all know. People aren't coming back to the office. Whammy number two is the capital markets, where Martin is now at 150 over where he was before. But the problem is this. We don't know when we're going to get to the new normal and what that new normal looks like. I'll be straight up here. We were too optimistic on when people were going to come back. We just were. Our forecast was that we'd be back to the new normal already. We're not there yet. The other thing we didn't anticipate was this massive bifurcation of the A product, the true A product, and the everything else product. And because of that, we're seeing actually quite good leasing activity in the best products in every market in the A product. Even in those assets where the tenants have to pay that $600 or more TI for themselves. Where we're not seeing activities in the Bs. And in the Bs, you're going to see either landlords put a tremendous amount of CapEx into the building. Willis Tower is what? 10 blocks from us right now? Blackstone just put $650 million into that building. The question is, is that enough? Is that enough? Because I'm a big believer in sub-markets, not just markets. I like the West Loop. I like the Fulton Market more. And it's not just my preference. It's many of our clients' preferences. So if you take a look at tenant demand, and if you, we had this conversation three years ago, I would have said, oh, yeah. Fulton Market, this small little sleepy sub-market in the back where we get 5% of the market's leasing activity. Now it's close to 20%. Big change in the Chicago market. But here's the good news. Notwithstanding the fact that you see a lot of this in the office these days, the office has a very bright future. It's just going to look different than what it looked like in the past with more people moving to flat Class A, more CapEx in the Class B, and yes, some conversions, and yes... My second shameless plug for the... Is it my third shameless plug, John? Third. My third shameless plug for the weekly take that we dropped on Tuesday. We had a company called Vitrix on the show. And what do they do? Nothing but converting older office buildings into multifamily. All of this leads to a question that I couldn't answer at the beginning, which is why I called this Jeopardy, not the Price is Right. I can't tell you what the prices are when we don't have a lot of trading volume. And if anybody here is in the uh, appraisal business, I don't think we have any appraisers in the room, do we? Well, if you do deal with appraisers, give those people a hug the next time you see them. Because the only reason why values haven't fallen off further is appraisers have a method called, through their MAI process of only using comps to slowly bring the market down. So they've actually been a force of stability in what has been a very, very challenging market. But don't take it from me. Here's shameless plug number four for the weekly take, and you can hear what our global chief economist, Richard Barkham, has to say. Interest rates in the United States are the highest they've been in 15 years. 
So uh, that is all going to be rather suppressive of economic activity in 2023 and will lead us probably into a moderate recession over the course of the year. But on the upside, I do think it will be enough to bring inflation under control. Um, inflation isn't going to drop like a stone, but it will decrease over the course of 2023, allowing rates to be cut and a, a revival in the economy in 2024. That's the big picture. So um, the good news and bad news here, Martin, is that uh, Richard is our global chief economist, really smart guy, but he's actually from the Bronx. And he puts on that British accent so he sounds like a proper economist. So I just, I just had to tell you that. Okay, so let's get to the macro here, folks. But before we get there, we need another trivia question answered. Who is the artist who sang this song, Major Tom? All right, who said Bowie? Who said Peter Schilling? That is the correct answer, sir. Well done. And you should know that Peter Schilling is a German who I do not think speaks a word of English. And I did this very speech in Frankfurt about a month and a half ago, and they didn't get it right there. So congratulations. <laughs> well done. So why do we have Peter Schilling in this presentation? Because I like his device of four, three, two, one to help explain the economy. So that's what we're going to do right now. Peter Schilling, well done, sir, well played. So here's an uplifting question while we're eating lunch. <laughs> Who are the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Well, you probably think it's these people, death, pestilence, famine. Boy, that makes me feel really good right after lunch, right? But the good news is those are not the four horsemen I'm talking about today of the apocalypse. It's these guys. And who are these guys? These guys are four of the most prominent economists in the United States, if not the world. And just to read off who's there, you have Paul Krugman on the left, who you probably know as the New York Times political columnist, also a Nobel Prize winning economist in labor. Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary. Jay Powell, who is the head of the Fed. And that guy on the right, anybody know who that is? Richard Thaler. And does anybody know where he works? University of Chicago. Okay, my favorite economist. And why do I show you the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Four people, two Nobel Prizes, Treasury Secretary, head of the Fed. Because they don't agree about anything about where the economy is right now. Larry Summers, who is the second gentleman right there, he, I lovingly call Dr. Doom. Because he believes we are going off a cliff. He thinks that the Fed's going to have to raise rates to at least 6%. Unemployment's going to have to get a whole lot higher. What I actually think is he's just bitter that the Biden administration did not give him a job because he was the Treasury Secretary under Clinton and then he was the council, head of the Council of Economic Advisors under Obama. Side note, my cousin worked for him, so he's not a bad guy, but he does have bad opinions about the economy. And then you have your... Local guy, Richard Thaler, who is the father of what's known as behavioral economics, won a Nobel Prize for it. What did Mr. Chicago Richard Thaler say on CNBC the other day? He said, quote, there is no mathematical way the U.S. can enter into a recession. So let me repeat that. <laughs> Dr. Doom is, we are going to hell in a handbasket. And then we have... We're going to be just fine. And why does he say that? He said that because the unemployment rate has never been this low going into a downturn and because of this nominal growth thing that I talked about before. The underlying growth in the economy is incredible. So he's looking at those factors. And why do I say all this fancy stuff to these fancy guys? Because it just shows how hard it is to predict where we're going when some of the smartest people in the room don't even agree on where we're going. But why does everybody feel bad today? Everybody feels bad today because, not because of the absolute cost of interest. It is the speed at which it went up. People got shell-shocked by it. But to, to help me with this one, I have to just say as a caveat, while we are all 29 years old in the room here today, 
Did anybody have a home mortgage in the early 1980s? Anybody want to admit that they had a home mortgage? Yes, sir, what's your name? Hi, Kurt, how you doing? So, Kurt, you've been on my saying, what was the cost of your mortgage in the early 1980s? 13%. Anybody else? What's your, what, back of the room, what, did you have, what was your cost, sir? 14%. Over here? 19%. 16%. This is like the scariest auction in the world, isn't it? <laughs> but the point is this, is even though interest rates are high and the Fed's probably going to get a little higher, 5 5.5% in the next couple of months, it's a lot lower than 19%. It's a lot lower than 13%. So put things in perspective, people. Rates went up quickly, and they are going to go down quickly. And this is the fundamental assumption you either agree with me about or you don't. Because if you agree with this, you're going to agree with everything else I'm about to say. If you don't agree with this, well, enjoy the eggplant parmesan. <laughs> so... There's a school of thought out there right now, if you're in the finance side of the business, that interest rates are going to stay higher forever. And if you take a look at the forward curves on Wall Street of the short end of the curve, they say, oh, interest rates are going to stay at these elevated levels forever. Okay. Well, I have looked at every single Fed rate rising cycle going back to 1980, and there's about six of them. And you know what all six of them showed? That Wall Street always says that rates are going to stay high forever. And you know what? Wall Street is 100% completely wrong every single time. The rates will come down. They will start to come down at the end of this year, and then they will drop like a rock. And dropping like a rock means that while they might stop out at 5%, they're going to end up closer to 1.5% by 2025. Now, that's the short, that short end of the curve. This is the long end of the curve. This is the 10-year Treasury, which we think has already peaked. But what has not come in yet, and this is the key, is the spreads over the 10-year. Because when you get a home mortgage, you're not paying that. You're paying that plus a spread. And once we get past this moment of peak volatility, those spreads will come in, and the cost of debt will get a lot cheaper, and Martin will be at that 100 basis points over, which I'll get him to before the end of today's presentation. Two. Why does two matter? Okay, first, how do we get into this predicament today? Because the one thing the Fed is scared of more than inflation is deflation. And they were afraid that because the COVID shock was so shocking that people would be afraid to spend it, have a bunker mentality. They were wrong, but at least this is why they did what they did. This is why they thought inflation was going to be temporary last year and didn't act on it because they wanted to give the economy just a little bit of a boost. They gave it a, <clears throat> a little bit too much of a boost. But the bottom line, that's what happened. But we believe that the economy is now objectively slowing down. If you saw the re release this morning at 8.31 a.m., you saw that CPI has come down to its lowest level uh, since uh, June of last year. And we're going to be seeing the month over month actually went negative. So we, the Fed is doing its job, and it's doing its well. But here's an interesting factoid for those economic historians out there. You'll see that our terminal rate on the CPI is about 2.5%, while the Fed's target rate is 2%. There are a lot of very serious economists right now who believe the Fed should raise its target rate to 25 to 3% so that they don't have to squash the economy down to that 2% level. But here's some additional evidence of how I know for sure that inflation is coming down. First of all, anybody, can anybody name that movie? Used Cars, thank you very much. We got Greg Kinn, Peter Schilling, Used Cars. This is like an 80s reunion in this town, huh? <laughs> so back in January of last year, I had to bring in my Jeep to Jeep Grand Cherokee to uh, get a new one because it was coming off of lease. But I had a problem. My car was 30,000 miles over its lease limit, so I figured I'd have to pay my friendly neighborhood used car dealer 6,000 bucks just to hand it in. But I spoke to my friendly neighborhood used car dealer who gave me economic advice. He said, you know what? 
Your residual value on this car is $20,000, but it's actually worth 30. So you should buy your car and you can keep the 6,000 bucks. So taking economic advice from my friendly neighborhood used car dealer, I did exactly that and I bought the car. So fast forward to September of this year when I had to trade in that car because my wife wanted another car. Anybody want to guess what that same used car dealer offered me for my $30,000 Jeep Grand Cherokee in September? Anybody? 18? Anybody else? 20? 40. Ah, $17,000. So what is the good news and the bad news here? Here's the bad news. The fancy economics guy up here took economic advice from his friendly neighborhood used car dealer. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. I took one for the team because now I have objective evidence that inflation is coming down. Used car prices are dropping like a rock. You've probably seen Carvana has had some serious economic problems because of that. Okay. One. Why does one matter? Growth. Remember what I said before about 0% growth? How it's not as scary as you think it is? But you know what I think is scary? Is when you don't go for growth at all. So I was in Richmond, Virginia yesterday for 12 hours in the airport while the FAA figured out that, uh, how to get out of there. It was the worst travel day of my life. But on that positive note, I was the last time I was in Richmond, I debated a congressman by the name of Dave Bratt. And I said to Dave, who was a right-of-center guy, but a formerly trained economist, so we had a very straight economics discussion, I said, Congressman, I said, what we need to do is grow the U.S. economy faster. It's the only way we can solve all of the problems we have. He goes, well, we, we could do that, and all you got to do is have more immigration and get people more productive. He said, but we need to change. We need to move from a standard that is based on growth to a standard that's based on standard of living. Now, what does that mean? Okay, Japan has not grown in 35 years, but they have one of the highest standards of living in the world. And as a matter of fact, UBS puts out a study every year which measures each country on which country is least miserable. Now, it doesn't mean they're happiest, it just means they're least miserable. Japan on that least miserable list comes in second. The United States comes in 38th, right after Bulgaria. <laughs> and you ask yourself, well, what does that mean? It means that there's people on the far right, like Congressperson Bratt, and there are people on the far left who are both trying to abandon growth as a standard and go to this standard of living thing, which sounds really like a great thing until you go back to Margaret Thatcher's old uh, saying that uh, socialism is a great form of government until you run out of other people's money. Uh, and that's what would happen here in the United States. So as I said before, the one thing that lets me sleep like a baby at night is knowing that the Fed is not under any form of political control. The one thing that keeps me up at night is that there is the far right and the far left are now both on the same page when it comes to the future of the U.S. economy. So if you're going to worry about anything, worry about that. But in any event, as I said before, growth is going to be about zero this year, which is not as bad as it sounds because the underlying growth is great. And then we get to a rate in 25 of around 3% plus. And that's very good. Because if you recall pre-COVID, we were clipping along at around a 2% or below pace. So having growth that's a little bit faster going forward, I think is a very good thing. Let's go micro now. Let's talk about commercial real estate and its implications from this macro stuff. First, let's hear from my colleague, Chris Ludeman, Global Head of Capital Markets, on what he thinks in my, I'm on my fifth shameless plug here, John. Fifth shameless plug. You know, I've been take. at this for more than four decades, so I've seen my fair share of cycles. This is a unique set of circumstances in that in most instances, in most geographies, and in most product sectors, fundamentals are actually quite good. But we're, doing, we're seeing these valuation changes um, as a result of a math problem. The cost of capital, how capital wants to be paid, whether it's debt or equity, in the face of economic and geopolitical uncertainty as well as inflation 
has caused um, investors on both the sell side and the buy side to enter a, a discovery period. The bottom line is fundamentals aren't good. They're great in most asset classes. Even in, in class A office, they're actually quite good. But if you look at multifamily, you look at industrial, look at retail, look at hotels, very, very good. But the problem isn't fundamentals. The problem is the capital markets right now. And so what do I look at every morning when I get to the office? After I read the Financial Times. Uh, so I look fancy because it's orange paper. I look at our trading activity. And this is what our trading activity looks like. You can see that the number of deals that we're bringing to market today is about the same of where we were about a year ago. But that's the sell side. Here's the buy side. And you can see that as of about a month and a half ago, we had about 33% less potential buyers than we had a year ago. And even though today those numbers are converging, most of those new bidders over there are what we call tire kickers. They're not real bidders. They are bidding just to see what the asset is worth. So the bottom line is this. So long as we have the supply-demand imbalance, we're going to see less deals actually traded, and we're going to see upward pressure on cap rates. The other thing I spend my day doing is I look for where is the money coming from. So I just got back from Germany. I just got back from Israel. I'm going to Belfast and London next week. Why was I in Israel? Well, there are two reasons I was in Israel. Number one, I like going to Israel. I've been here three times. It's a beautiful place. But the second reason I like going to Israel is because the shekel is one of the few foreign currencies that has not been materially devalued by the rise in the value of the U.S. dollar. So they have a lot of money that they can bring here to the United States. As a matter of fact, I had two or three of my largest clients that were heading to Israel just before or just after me for that reason. So when you follow the money, to use the old Watergate term, look for whose currencies are still stronger. The other thing you should think about is there are some currencies that got crushed out there, including the euro, including the won in South Korea. If you are in the international real estate space, you can buy buildings in those markets at a 20 to 30% discount if you're using U.S. dollars. Okay, math warning. What does all this stuff mean for value? It means this. It means that we think that cap rates are going to go up by 100 to 250 basis points in the short term, and then they are going to come down just like interest rates. Now, what I say to my folks on the investor side, I know you're on the occupier side, most of you in the room here today, I tell them that right now, as we're speaking in this room today, cap rates are already at their peak which means that if you have dry powder, now is the time to buy because cap rates are going to start to come down, meaning values are going to go up. And the window of opportunity is much more narrow than you think. It's like, oh, I'll just wait for things to get better. By the time it gets better, it's too late. There's an old expression in stock trading that you buy the rumor and you sell the news. Buy the rumor that I'm saying that cap rates are going to start to come down Soon. Now, what if we're wrong on inflation? Well, there's one piece of good news for the, I guess, for the landlord side. Rents will go up a little bit faster. The bad news is that cap rates will go up a little bit higher. Fundamentals. What's going on with fundamentals? Well, let's first hear from Colette English Dixon in my six. Thank you, John. The head of the Roosevelt University real estate program right here in Chicago. Why not Chicago? I mean, Chicago is the third to fourth largest city in the country. It has an incredibly talented workforce. It has proximity to the largest body of fresh water in the world. It has a diversity of economic sectors. It is a beautiful day, even in the winter. Um, we've got a great basketball team. And from an economic perspective, the ability to come here for talent, companies need talent, especially right now. And Coming here with both the educational institutions, the attraction to other Big Ten institutions, and just the lifestyle makes it a hotbed of, you know, talent for people to have working for their companies. Why Chicago? Why not Chicago? It's a perfect place. I could just end on that note there, right? <laughs> Folks, I'm going to be direct with you. If I haven't been direct before, I'm going to be direct now. There are a lot of my clients who are not fans of Chicago. And they're not fans of Chicago because they're concerned about the tax burden, the pension fund crisis, politics, and other things. I want you to know that I am not one of those people. 
I am a strong advocate for Chicago because I think all of those very same reasons are reasons you should invest here because you can get it cheaper here than you can in markets with similar demographics. And the other thing is this, and I will pound the podium on this one, is that even though you are seeing a net outflow of people from Chicago, that is just a fact I can't change, you are seeing a net inflow into Chicago of the most highly educated people, highly productive, highly paid people, and these are the people that create a multiplier effect. For every person making over $100,000, you have demand for two more retail jobs, eight more hotel nights, more industrial demand, and for every six new jobs created, you have demand for one more multifamily unit. Chicago is a great place, and your proximity to all these great education institutions is probably the number one reason. Now, what's happening by asset type? Well, we're seeing what you already know. Logistics and apartments are doing great. Office is getting a lot softer. But there is the land of milk and honey out here, and Chicago is one of the major industrial markets in the United States, and it's doing incredibly well. You take a look at the industrial demand in some of the tightest markets in the country, it is basically zero. Industrial is doing great. And where's rents going? Well, rents are growing up almost 7% in some of these markets. And for all of you economic historians out there, you all know what the rule of seven is. Anybody here know the rule of seven? If something goes up by 7% for seven years, it doubles in value. That's what the rule of seven is. Albert Einstein was once asked, what is the most powerful force in the universe? And he said, compound interest. And that's what you're seeing now in the industrial sector. In the multifamily sector, you're seeing tremendous rent growth as well. And yes, Chicago is on this list if you go to the bottom here, folks, growing at cumulative and compounded rent over the next five years at over at almost 5%. But here comes a fancy eye chart that you will not be able to read, but I will explain it to you quickly. This is the challenge you have in underwriting certain markets, including San Francisco, which is our number one rent growth market. We are changing the way we are underwriting today, not just to take into consideration fundamentals and capital markets, but also new factors, such as the availability of water, which Colette mentioned in her, in her message, transportation, quality of schools, political risk. And when you put political risk on there, Chicago and San Francisco do not show as well. So these are some of the factors that investors are beginning to look at when they are investing in certain markets. I was just in Phoenix, Arizona the other day. And just north of Phoenix is Mesa. And Google just built a new data center there. And there are a lot of people that are protesting the new data center. And I'm like, why would you protest a data center? Because did you know that the average data center uses 20 to 30,000 households worth of water per day, and Phoenix doesn't have any water? So if you want to get into a new industry here in Chicago, you should send a big pipe from Lake Michigan down to Phoenix, and you would find something else. But my broader point is this. The institutional world is changing how they underwrite and are changing how they underwrite to take these factors into consideration. And one big shout out for the occupiers in this room here today. We recently did a survey of both our largest occupiers and our largest investors. The largest occupiers all want to go to something like carbon neutral by 2030. The largest investors want to get there by 2040 to 2050. So the occupiers are driving the bus in terms of making the world a cleaner, greener place. So as I mentioned before, when we look at markets, we first look at the macro. Here's the macro, folks, of people leaving some markets like Chicago and going to markets like Dallas and Austin, Texas. And no, I am not throwing Chicago under the bus. I'm going to show you plenty of love in a second here, folks. You cannot just look at the macro. You have to look at the micro of the people coming in and into the sub-markets where they're going in. And Chicago is the number 20th ranked tech talent market. And if you looked at it on a life sciences basis, it would be even higher than that. And if you look at it based upon the level of education of the average person, it would be even higher than that. Folks, this is a great market. And if you don't believe me, take the words of my father. My father, who was from the Bronx, said there are only two real cities in America, New York and Chicago. And well, that's the highest compliment I can give this town. But the point is, 
This is probably the most important slide in the whole presentation today. So for those of you who are photographing these slides, go ahead and photograph this one. But what I also will tell you is that you will all get the full deck anyway, so if you don't want to photograph, you don't have to do it either. But who is on this list? So you have Chicago on this list. The River North they put as the number one submarket. I would put Fulton Market, but you know, we could debate that. But what is the characteristic of all of these markets? Submarkets, they are all live, work, play. Most of them have a university base about them. Most of them have walkability, hugely, hugely important. And then which market, and I hate to do this, and John Latessa, you know I love you like a brother, man, but you're gonna really hate this next slide. The number one market in Detroit is Ann Arbor, which is home to my son, who is a freshman at the University of Michigan. Oh, it's only getting worse, John. It's only gonna get worse. Ah, you know, I still love you, John. Michigan State guy, what can I tell you? <laughs> so here's some big ideas to think about. So what are we thinking about? Where do I tell my clients to go? Well, I tell them about the usual suspects. I tell them to go into industrial, because industrial is doing so well for the reasons I just laid out. I also tell them to go into multifamily, so here comes yet another shameless plug. In addition to what I do for CBRE, I am also the co-chairman of the Affordable Housing Committee for the Real Estate Roundtable, which is the largest real estate lobbying group in the United States. And I am a huge affordable housing advocate, and I just wrote a paper on it if anybody wants to read it. But the bottom line is this. If I could magically create four million new dwelling units right now and just plop them down around America, we'd still have a huge housing shortage. And so right now, one of the things that I'm talking to uh, with some of our largest occupiers is what do we do with these older office buildings? Well, I say convert some of them into affordable housing. When I say affordable, I also mean capital A affordable, which means government regulated, because if you're on the investor side, you can get similar returns on capital A affordable to what you can get in regular value add and or class A multifamily. But multifamily, we are gonna have a shortage forever. I love data centers, notwithstanding their insatiable use of energy and water. But when I speak to my clients, I say, buy data centers, but build life sciences. Why? Because it's going to be very difficult to build data centers going forward in places that are stressed on energy or water. Northern Virginia ran out of energy. They can't build any more data centers. But life sciences, there just ain't enough of it. So uh, I hate to do this, but did anybody here go to Ohio State? Uh, well, I'm going to give a shout out to Ohio State just the same anyways. <laughs> so I was at Ohio State the other day, the week after the Ohio State game. And I met with the head of real estate there. And they were building 250,000 square feet of new life sciences. And I was like, well, why are you building that? He said, because we can't build a million because we don't have enough space for it. Basically, the demand for new life sciences space pertinent to universities, healthcare systems, and then in a variety of clusters around the country led by San Francisco, San Diego, and Boston is insatiable. We don't have enough of it. Data centers buying it, though, is a better deal. The other thing I'm advising my clients to do right now is to look at the stock market. I am not allowed to give stock tips, but I will say this. The single best piece of advice I ever gave one of my clients was in October of 2020, when I told that client, the single most oversold market I have ever seen was the office REIT market. A week later, the vaccines were announced, it popped, the office REIT stocks popped by 35%, and that guy still owes me a cup of coffee <laughs> after I made him millions of dollars. But look at the public REIT stocks when you're trying to determine where values are. The unusual suspects, what else do I like? I love hotels. Back in December, I visited the ICSE, which is a big retail conference in New York City, and I stayed at what must have been the world's greatest courtyard by Marriott, because I paid a thousand bucks a night. 
And believe me, it was not the world's greatest courtyard by Marriott. I'm not even sure if it was the world's greatest courtyard by Marriott. It'd be worth a thousand bucks a night. But the bottom line is, hotels are great. For all the people who just came back from winter vacation, I'm sure you paid a lot more for those hotel rooms than you thought, because for leisure destinations, there's tremendous pent-up demand. And in markets like Chicago, how many of your rooms came out of the stock? A lot. In New York City, 20,000 rooms came out of the stock. And so because of that, markets like this, you're going to see rising rates as well. Retail. I get it wrong a lot, folks. I told you I got it wrong on inflation, but doggone it, I got it right on retail. I said in this room a few years ago that retail is the most undervalued asset class in re real estate, and that is correct. Not only based upon my opinion, based upon the fundamentals, and then you take a look at it from a capital markets perspective, and you compare its cap rate to its rent growth expectations, there is no asset class that is more undervalued than retail today. And yes, I like office. Why do I like office? I like office because a lot of people don't. And you can get the very best office right now for two to 300 basis points cheaper than you would have gotten it in January. I've seen some of my clients buy the best stuff at huge discounts, even with AAA tenants, even with long-term leases. What has caused the material devaluation in a lot of these buildings? The amount of rent bumps annually. Most of the leases that were signed over a year ago have rent bumps of two to 3% annually. That devalues the asset by itself by over two to 300 basis points. That is why many of my clients today that are on the landlord side are asking for four to 5% rent bump growth every year. And a lot of you say, I'm not gonna pay four or 5%. Told you that shining Tony guy keeps coming back to me something. There's a reason to pay four or 5% inflation, but what I'm advising my, Investor clients is the same thing when advising my occupier clients. Pay the 4 or 5% for two years and then drop it back down to the 2 or 3% you were before. Buy overseas. O overseas is on sale because the U.S. dollar is so strong. Okay, final jeopardy. My final thoughts on today. But in final jeopardy, I'm first going to ask you one more trivia question. Here's the trivia question. Does anybody here know who the Clubber Lang of economics is? First of all, does anybody here know who Clubber Lang is? Yeah, it's always guys over the age of 40. Yeah. All right. For those of you who don't know who Clubber Lang is, here's Clubber Lang. And this is what Clubber Lang said. What's your prediction for the fight then? Prediction? Yes, prediction. Pain. What's your prediction for the fight? Pain. Does that give anybody a hint of who the Clubber Lang of economics is? Anybody want to shout it out? Okay, folks. It is Jerome Powell, the head of the Fed, because this is what Jerome Powell said. Reducing inflation is likely to require a sustained period of below-trend growth. Moreover, there will very likely be some softening of labor market conditions. While higher interest rates, slower growth, and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation. They will also bring some pain to how- Pain! <laughs> what did I say before? He's trying to scare you. It's not because he's a bad guy. He's not a bad guy. He's trying to talk the market down rather than force the market down. Now, folks, I covered a lot of material today, but really it comes down to whether you see the world with a glass half empty or half full. So I will make both cases very quickly. If you want to look at the world with a glass half empty, this is how the world with a glass half empty looks like. It looks like you start with the war in Ukraine. Good Lord, that thing spun out of control quickly, didn't it? And it's going to materially and adversely impact not just from a humanitarian perspective, but the global economy for years to come. The bank lending space, notwithstanding the fact that Martin will now lend at 125 over, you simply cannot get a loan today. And it not, it's not Martin's fault. Martin's a good guy. And Martin legitimately is from London, as opposed to my colleague who fakes it from the Bronx. <laughs> the reason is that the Fed is squeezing banks right now. And I don't know how much Martin's prepared to say about this, but the Fed is telling banks, lend less until you get more office deals off your balance sheet and create more what's known as risk-weighted capital, meaning they don't have enough cash to lend. That's pretty pessimistic until the Fed takes its foot off the brake. Uh, 
I presume none of you were here at the National Multi-Housing Conference a few months ago in Miami. At that conference, at a speech just like this, um, protesters rushed the stage at a real estate conference. And they were rushing the stage, why? Because what did I say before about affordable housing? We have a massive problem right now with affordable housing. And so I don't like to talk politics in these presentations, but unless our industry tackles the affordable housing problem, things are only going to get worse. And we have the ability to do it. We have the ability to do so profitably. And it's not just landlords who can do it. It's occupiers with some of their older space. The spot market, you want to be pessimistic? If we were forced to liquidate the value of assets today, you'd see a fall of value much more significant than the 200 basis points I'm suggesting. But the good news is that the spot market value isn't value. Value is a longer term proposition, and as I suggested, cap rates are coming down. But here's another thing to be pessimistic about. So this is me in my backyard in Owings Mills, Maryland. And we have a deer problem in Owings Mills, Maryland, or a stag problem, to use another term for deer. And so to try to prevent these deer coming into my yard, I used a MacGyver-like contraption where I built this fortress between me and the only gap in my fence. What happened to me the day I built this fortress? What met me face to face in my backyard was not just a deer, but a stag with antlers. And I looked at this stag and I said, your move. And it jumped right over my contraption <laughs> like it wasn't even there. What's my point here? There's people that are concerned about this thing called stagflation. Get it? Stag, stagflation. Building these MacGyver-like contraptions. The smartest people in the world are trying to prevent a soft, prevent a hard landing. Notwithstanding how smart they are and using all these tools, it still might not happen no matter what our best efforts are. But I'm an optimistic guy, and so I like to work, look at the world with a glass half full. These are the things I will point you to look at it half full. Number one, our industry is getting its act together from an ESG standpoint. In addition to the occupiers who are leading the way in terms of going to net zero, we're seeing more of our landlords and occupiers using green technology such as solar panels on their roofs on more commercial real estate today. Did you know, and I'm sure you do, commercial real estate emits 40 percent of the world's carbon emissions. So we need to get our act together. Otherwise, people are going to put more regulations on our industry, making it more expensive. The other thing that makes me optimistic, nominal growth, very strong, over 7%, notwithstanding the headlines of a 0% growth. Number three, CPI. Now, I put all of my eggs in the CPI basket. It is the only number you should look at as it comes out every month, and it came out this morning. Now, when I started giving this speech back in September, I said, oh, yeah, the September report's going to be great. <laughs> well, back in September and October, this is what it looked like. They were really, really bad. But what have we seen in November, December, and now this morning? All positive CPI reports showing that what the Fed is doing is working, and there is light at the end of the tunnel, including this morning. But let's go back and let's finish this speech on this note. Remember what I said before about Richard Thaler, your University of Chicago professor, my favorite economist in the world? He's created or won a Nobel Prize for what's known as behavioral economics. And what it essentially says is how you feel influences how you think more than anything else, more than any Excel spreadsheet or other analysis. And that is why, particularly in markets like we're in today, where things look bad, you've got to maintain your optimism and don't stop believing. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, I was told to keep about 10 minutes to the end. I'm a, a person of my word. I can take a few questions. So, questions? Anybody have any questions?
Sure. So the U.S. debt to GDP is over 100% right now. And people, traditionally, economists, like that number to be much lower than that, 80% of debt to GDP. But what did I say before? The U.S. national debt, while it's scary, it's $24, $25 trillion, is measured in nominal dollars. And because nominal GDP is going up so quickly, you're going to see that percentage of debt to GDP also go down, creating more dry powder for the Fed. And by the way, I've got bad news for anybody who ever thinks that we're going to repay the national debt. Uh, We're not. We can't. And that's never been the plan. The plan is always to make the economy bigger so national debt as a percentage of the economy is smaller. Thank you for your question. Other questions? I can give you some more songs from Flock of Seagulls, Men Without Hats. I'm an (laughs) 80s trivia buff. Okay. Oh, yes. Yes, sir. Thank you. I listened to a uh, podcast the other night, and they were talking about Chinese labor becoming more expensive than uh, Mexico's labor. Mm -hmm. Do you see manufacturing moving more to the south, or do you see it staying in China? First of all, did that, did that come off the Weekly Take podcast? From it CBO? did not. But then I can't answer the question, sir. Okay. No, I'm, just <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's seven. Shameless. Shameless. So, yes, um, when my colleague, Henry Chin, who runs my research desk in Asia, and I were talking about this very thing about China, Chinese labor getting more expensive, he thinks that the world is going to go to what he calls a, quote, plus one strategy, so China plus one. And that would be, from his perspective, the VIP countries, Vietnam, Indonesia, and the Philippines. I said, well, I'm an American. I like the Big Mac. Mexico, America, and Canada. And why? Because the average Mexican laborer makes 10% of what an American laborer makes. And Canada has five times, on a percentage basis, of the amount of skilled labor immigration as the U.S. So skilled labor immigration... Cheap labor, the Big Mac. So, yes, people are going to be shifting their manufacturing bases, uh, A, for geopolitical reasons, because they just don't trust China and Russia as much as they once did, uh, but also um, uh, for resiliency. The, The negative of that is notwithstanding the fact that Mexico is still cheap, it's going to be somewhat inflationary. Because if you're not going to be in a globalized economy where you can go to the cheapest labor around the world, it will put some upward pressure on prices. Other questions? Yes, sir. Yep. The great resignation and what the impact of that has has been, and whether that'll whether that'll change anything. Sure. So the workforce participation rate, you, you got to look at it in three age cohorts. The main age cohort, the biggest one, are people between 25 and 54. That age cohort is actually back to where it was pre-COVID. It is the older cohort and the younger cohort that are not, that are still below those levels that they were uh, coming back to the workforce. What's going to get people to go back to work? Okay. Shameless plug again. I am a proud graduate of the Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations. And I studied labor. And when I studied labor back in the 1980s, we learned that labor had both perfect information and perfect mobility. Those were both false back in the mid-1980s. You know when they were true? During COVID. They're true today. They're true because of Zoom. But you know when that teeter-totter is going to change? Because this is a labor versus management issue we're dealing with here. It's not a real estate issue. Is when the unemployment rate goes up. When the unemployment rate goes up, Some of that power will shift back to management, and you'll see people coming back to the office more, and that will raise the labor force participation rate. There's another negative thing that's going to happen, and I'm not proud of what I'm about to say, but because the stock market has gotten hit so hard, because of inflation, there are going to be a lot of retirees that are simply not going to have as much money for retirement as they thought they were going to have. So some of them are going to come back to the force as well. So it's going to be the combination of inflation, lousy stock market performance, and greater management pressure that will get those labor force participation rates back to where they were. But still, we still need another answer. And I'm not going to get on my, we need more immigration high horse, but we do. Yes, sir, the question over there. Ten-year T-bill versus two-year T-bill, inverse relationship right now. Some say 
reason for recession. Do you see a fast correction of that as heading this off, or what are your thoughts around that? Sure. So what the gentleman's referring to is the 210 inversion. Normally, the two-year Treasury is lower than the 10-year. Today, it's higher. And it's been a harbinger of recession seven of the last nine times that it's occurred. And it very well might be this time, because we're predicting a recession, a mild one, but, but a recession just the same. Um, so yeah, it's of concern. But the 210 split does not cause a recession. It is an indicator of one. So I still have optimism that we can avoid a hard landing because of all of the positive news we've gotten recently on inflation. We saw the two-year go down, by the way, significantly. Uh, in the last um, three weeks, it's gone down by 30, 40 basis points as well. So we are at a point where the news is no longer a parade of horribles. We're getting some good news, which is causing that curve, which was the most skewed it's ever been uh, as recently as a month ago, to get closer to flat. But we're still a 70 basis point difference. So it's a long, fancy way of saying this. It's still a harbinger of doom. We're likely to have a recession, but I'm optimistic it's going to be a soft, not a hard landing for some of the reasons we talked about today. I have time for one more question, folks. One more question, and then I'm putting about a pound of eggplant parm in my bag for the plane on <laughs> the way back. Yes, sir, what's your name? Uh, um, in the um, long term, meaning five years from now. Sure. Uh, I think that the proof is in the pudding. And you know what the pudding is? Is that when the going gets tough, the money from the world comes to the United States. Because we might have all kinds of problems, but if you've looked around the world, there are a whole lot less than everybody else's. We have political stability here. We have rule of law. We have uh, liquidity. All these things that makes the U.S. dollar the reserve currency for the world, and it will be for as long as I can see. I don't see China replacing it, and I certainly don't see some form of Bitcoin or other type of cryptocurrency replacing it. That's, by the way, what cryptocurrency really is. When people say, why do we like cryptocurrency, is because they want that to replace central governments around the world um, with uh, this non-governmental um, form of uh, transaction. It ain't never going to happen. And I mean never. And the reason why never isn't because of the disaster we saw last month with FTX. It's because the world governments simply won't allow it. You, the world governments will not allow a non-governmental agency to take away one of their primary power tools, which is control of the currency. So the U.S. currency will be the reserve currency indefinitely. Out of time. Go Chicago.